scripture today is Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with every, anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for um, your word and how it convicts us, but also we're able to know your love and your grace by it. Dear God, I pray that... Um, as we come this morning, um, you would show us what is in the way in our life um, of you. Dear God, I pray that um, we would know what we are putting first instead of you. Um, convict us where we are wrong. Help us to love each other as you have loved us. Um, help us to forgive each other as you forgave us. Um, help Kevin as he speaks today. Um, give him the words and open our hearts and our minds to what he has to say and what you have to convict us of. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, thank you guys for being here uh, this morning. If this is your first time at Aletheia Church, welcome. Uh, my name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. I uh, appreciate you guys bearing through our technical difficulties. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind just uh, humoring me for a minute and giving Kyle and Lenard and Brent a round of applause just for figuring that out. When, when technology and wiring goes bad, there's just only so much you can do because that stuff was working during their run-through this morning, and they managed to restart that and switch everything over to a different uh, method of transmitting that stuff to the televisions, uh, all while you guys were sitting there wondering why the screens were blue. And so um, they're amazing, and we really, really appreciate all that they do here to kind of help us focus during worship. So um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, we started into chapter 4 last week, and, and last week I said that Ephesians 4 is actually a major transition uh, uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, um, and that chapters 1 through 3, if we could use one word to kind of sum them up, we would say chapters 1 through 3 are position. And what, what Paul's doing is in, in describing who the, the, the Ephesians church identity is in, that it is in Christ. 
that positionally they are now in Christ, meaning that they're chosen, they're forgiven, they're loved, uh, that they're adopted, they're, they're redeemed. And so what we saw over the course of those first three chapters as we've been studying this book together as a church is that, that they were coming from a place where they knew who they now were that they were in Christ. They knew who their God was. They knew who the creator of the universe was. They knew who they were following. And so they had an identity now that overrode their, their maybe even their familial identity, their, their cultural identity, their nationality, their job, whatever places we kind of run to, to, to say, hey, this describes who I am. You know, whether it's, it's us saying we're a Gator or whatever other alma mater we may have as a university or that we're a Floridian or that we're an American or whatever else, that the Ephesian church is being told by Paul, hey, your identity in Christ overrides all of that, that it describes who you truly are. And so when we get to chapter four, and we're gonna see this in chapter five and chapter six as well, he's gonna move from heavily discussing this idea of position and who they were and making sure that they were reminded of that and they were abundantly clear on who they were to this idea of practice, right? What does it mean for our being in Christ? How should that affect our lives now? In the, in the here and now of 2018, if I am in Christ, how should that move me, right? And Paul's been pushing for this idea that we work from approval, not for approval. And the example that I shared last week that we, we disciple our children, Jackie and I, to remind them that when there are rules in our house and those rules are to be followed and that there needs to be obedience, that obedience comes from a place of approval because they are in our family. They are our sons. And because they are our sons, they get the freedom to live like an Anderson. They get to be an Anderson and, and that there are standards that our family lives by, but that doesn't change their position, right? And, and so what Paul is going to be pushing into, right, these Ephesian believers in Ephesus is this idea of, look, we can't just have all this knowledge of God. That, that knowledge of God must move us to a place of action, that, that that knowledge must move us to where we are on mission for the gospel. Right, if you guys will humor me here for a minute, I, I heard a great message uh, recently uh, from Dr. Tony Evans. He's the, he's the pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Texas. Some of you guys have probably heard of him. Some of you guys may not, but he's, he's a famous evangelical pastor in the Texas area. And so recently, uh, he, he was sharing a message uh, in Ephesians, and I heard him use this illustration, and I want to share it this morning because I think it, it ties in really well to this idea of what Paul is going to be sharing with us this morning. And so let me, let me ask you this. How many of you guys have ever audited a class in college or know somebody that did audit a class or talked about auditing a class? Okay, so like two or three of you. Okay, so let me explain what auditing a class is because you may or may not know what it is. But when you want to audit a class, what you do is you sign up for the class. Sometimes there's a fee, sometimes there's not. It's 
more common in seminary that people just, that just want to learn some information. They'll audit a class at the seminary, but they won't pay the full price to be a seminary student. But what you do when you audit a class is you go to that class, you sit in on it, and what, what you basically do is you, you get to learn the subject matter, um, you learn the material, and you get to grow. You get to grow on whatever particular topic that class is in. So if it's something in engineering and you're auditing a class in engineering, you're going to get the professor's lectures. You're going to be able to, if you want to, buy the book and study the book on your own. But you just, you basically go through the class, but you do so without having to, to, to take tests and be graded on it and maybe receive some sort of accreditation on the back end of moving through that course. Now, auditing can be a great way to grow in knowledge, but it comes at a price. And what I mean by that is that that price is that that knowledge comes without responsibility. Like you, you, if you are auditing a class, you have no responsibility to actually study, learn that material and be able to prove and demonstrate to the, the professor of that class that you actually understand that course material. There's no actual expectation that you do the work, take tests, pass the class, and therefore there is no proof that you have actually retained the information and been transformed by that information. And let me just say this, right? I have a son with some some health issues, and so we've spent quite a bit of time at Shands. I don't want neurologists that have audited their classes, I want, I want neurologists who can demonstrate to me, hey, I've been in this field for years. I know how to read an EEG. I, I know what the, the science of the brain is like because I've studied this. I know what kind of medication does what if we give it to your child. I want an expert in that field who has demonstrated that they actually know the subject material and not just know some of it, but have actually been transformed to where they kind of eat, sleep, and breathe that information and be able to prove it to me. And, and the reason I share this, because when I was listening to this sermon by Dr. Evans, right, here's what he said. He said, there is a tendency for us as Christians to audit the Christian life. That we have a tendency as followers of Christ to gain a lot of knowledge, to know a lot about God, to know a lot about the Bible, but then see no transformation or no life change because we know what the good news of Jesus does, but we don't experience what the good news does because we compartmentalize walking with Jesus into a few hours that are associated with church events. And we, we view our spiritual walk as maybe something we do on Sunday mornings or something we do at a community group or something with our campus ministry throughout the week but we don't ever actually truly experience the good news. And, and here's the deal, right? Because what I want you guys to start doing as you're sitting here this morning, as I've thrown this example, I was like, is this me? Is there a place or is it a reality for me that I am auditing being a follower of Christ? That I come in here and I sit down on Sunday mornings, that I maybe go to a community group or I'm involved with some sort of campus ministry and I go and sit down at their large group meeting throughout the week or I'm involved in one of their small groups and I'm gaining a bunch of knowledge. I've studied books of the Bible. I know theology. I might know a few things about God and who I am in light of him, but have I actually ended up compartmentalizing my life to the point where I just show up but nothing else is different in my life throughout the rest of the week? And I would just submit this to you guys. This is if, if, if you can sit here and you're, you're honestly just kind of reflecting and saying that 
This is not what God wants for us. God doesn't want a bunch of followers who have compartmentalized following him to where it's reduced down to a bunch of information and knowledge, but not tied to any action. That he longs for us to be the church every day in each and every facet of our lives. To be transformed and renewed in the work that he has already done for us so that we might live for his glory. And right, so here's what we're going to see this morning. Right, Paul is going to remind the Ephesians of who they are. He's re- he's re- he always does that. Whenever you notice that Paul's going to give some instructions, um, it's called frequently uh, in seminary circles the indicative and the imperative. Right? And what he does is he, he makes an indicative statement that's a, a truth about who we are in light of God, but then he gives an imperative, which is a charge to respond to that truth, to live out as if that is true of you. And so he's going to remind the Ephesians who they are, but then he's going to move into right, a reminder of who they're becoming because of God. And then he's going to give some really, really practical advice on how to live out that identity. So let me, let me read just a couple of verses here and I wanna break down what Paul's doing there and maybe give you guys a few ideas to, to start practically responding to that. Right? He says, starting in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their uh, minds, that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. It says that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So, so think about what Paul is saying in those four verses, right? He, he, he starts off by saying, right, first and foremost, right, now this I say and testify in the Lord, basically saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you, I, I got from Jesus, Right? So there are times throughout scripture where Paul says something and he's quick to differentiate between, hey, this is, this is something that God commands and this is something that I just think is good. Right? He'll do that at various times throughout his letters. But in this particular instance, he's saying, hey, look, guys, this is directly from the Lord. This is something the Lord has, has spoken to me and something that we need to know is true. Right? And he goes on to say that do not walk any longer as the Gentiles do. Right? Here's, here's basically what he's saying. He's saying, look, remember before Ephesian church when you were worshiping Apollos or, or Zeus or Aphrodite or, or uh, you were walking, right, you know, worshiping these different gods, going into these dip- different temples. Remember what your life was like and what life looks like maybe for your neighbor or the guy who works in the marketplace with you or what you see walking around the city. Remember, that is no longer who you are So don't walk in the same manner that you used to walk and that your Gentile neighbors still do. Don't walk in that old way. And I love the way he describes it. He says, you know, that that old way is actually actually futility. And and futility, if you look it up, the the definition in English means pointless or useless. So so what Paul is saying is that the the lives of these Ephesian men and women who do not know God, if we could sum up the way they live their lives, it would be pointless. Now, now that sounds sounds really harsh, right? Like, hey, hey, living life apart from the glory of God is pointless. But I've got a really simple example for you, right? 
if something has been designed and has a purpose and it no longer does and follows its intended design and purpose, what is it? More than likely pointless. Really solid example. The cable that ran from that computer this morning to the HD splitter stopped working. It was designed to take a signal to that splitter. Guess what happened? It stopped working. What kind of use was it to us as a church? Pointless, right? It moved away from its design and and original intention. And what God is saying about the human race is, hey, hey, I designed you to know me, to walk with me, to experience joy and obedience and growing with me. And if you're not doing that, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, life is vapor. Right? Now, I know you Floridians probably have no idea what that means, but if you're in a place that's cold and you walk outside and you breathe in the winter, guess what happens? You can actually see your breath, and then it kind of just disappears. It dissipates in front of you. Right? The author of Ecclesiastes says, hey, a life separated from God is like that vapor disappearing before your eyes. That life is like that vapor. It has no point, and it just moves on. You know, a, a, another example that I thought about this past week is my family, when we, when we get a day off, we like to go to the beach. And, and my kids have a great time. My wife hates it because there's sand everywhere, but the kids have a great time. Hey, and Gideon, every time we get there, guess what he wants to do? He wants to build a sandcastle. And guess where he and Josiah want to build that sandcastle? Like 10 feet from where the waves are crashing. Right? And as their dad, I'm like, this is futility. You're going to work for the next 45 minutes and then one wave is going to come and that entire 45 minutes of work is going to be gone. And worse than that, they're kids, so they're going to cry. Because they're not going to understand what is, what is going on here. But how much, how much more so are we like that as adults? Right? We work and we work and we strive for something, and, but it's not for the glory of God. It's not seeking out his name or his kingdom, no matter what it may be. Right? And then everything comes crashing and we're left sitting there crying, not understanding why. Right? Paul is saying that to, to not understand who you are and being designed by God and being in Christ makes life a futile endeavor that it is futility to have a life without an identity in Christ and a life that is void of walking out the implications of that with him. And so Paul says, look, don't walk as if life is futile anymore, Ephesian church, because guess what? It's not. You know who you are. You know who your creator is. You know that you have been adopted and purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. You don't live a life of futility any longer because you know what you're designed to do, right? If I could walk back there and speak life into that cable running from the computer into that splitter, I would say, you have been designed to do something, follow through on it, right? And Paul's saying to the church, respond to who you are because there's a difference between you and the Gentiles. That's why he, he says in verse 18 that, that they're stubborn towards God, He says that they're without hope and alienated and we covered that heavily back in chapter two. So you can go back and listen to that message because we covered that in death. But he says, look, the reality for the Gentiles who do not know Christ is that they're stubborn and without hope and alienated and in the futility of their minds, they've actually become calloused. 
And, and a callous means that they're no longer sensitive to things that should bother them. When I used to lift weights a lot when I was in high school, the bar hurt my hand. The bar's really rough and it's harsh. And so the first couple times I would lift when I was in high school, my hands, they would be all jacked up and hurting. Guess what? After a couple months, I would build up this callus on my skin to where I could hold that bar and do the different exercises that my football coach was asking me to do. And guess what? It didn't bother me anymore. And so calluses can be good things, but they can also be bad because they can break down our sensitivity to something that is harmful. And, and Paul says that the reality of these, gen, these Gentiles is that their callousness has grown over time in their sin and it's broken down their sensitivity to the natural moral compass that God places in every single one of us. Paul says you, you want proof that sin and disobedience is a problem? Look at your neighbor. That sinning begets more sin. Right? And Paul says this, that given, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so Paul's making this differentiation between the Ephesian church and their neighbors around them, saying, look, they live this way because they don't know who they are, but you do, don't walk in the same manner as them anymore. That your life should look different from non-believers around you. Right? He says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. You are not that way anymore. That is not who you are. Remember a couple weeks ago when I quoted Pastor Daniel, right? He says this, that the gospel is not about making bad people good. It's about bringing dead people to life. Paul's making sure that the Ephesian church understands this. Hey, hey, life was futile it was lived in callousness unto god but it is no longer that way that in christ obedience to god is freedom and joyous that jesus has bought them out of bondage to sin he's freed them to live unto god and that here's here's a secret that he wants the church there to understand that if they are in Christ, they can actually put sin to death and pursue God. I think there's just this reality for us as Christians is like so we, we maybe come to Christ later in life or we've been struggling with a particular sin for a really long time. And so we just look at it and say, that's just the way I'm always gonna be until I die or Jesus calls me home. And we're, and we're, just, we're just quick to look at that stuff and just kind of wave the white flag and give up. And Paul says, you don't need to do that. Life is not futile anymore. That the spirit of God dwells in you and you've been given an identity. This is who you are in Christ. And because this is who you are, you should be practicing obeying God and putting sin to death. Right? You should be practicing your God-given design of being human in the way that God created you and not trying to walk through life just figuring out everything on your own, right? And he's gonna actually start giving some practical ways to live that out, but first he's gonna remind them, like I said earlier, of some, some just the, the practicality of living that out. Look at what he says in verses 21 through 24. 
He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, saying, hey, look, your, your, your identity is being worked from being in Christ. That is the truth of who you are. And if you know that, you are free to, to be loved, forgiven, right? Know that he is the source of life and truth. You're free to live out of that. And then look at what he says in verse 22. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of who? God, in true righteousness and holiness. Right? He says like, look, here's who you are. Here's the reality of who you are in Christ. Here is who you should be coming, should be becoming as you live through life. In verse 22, this is the practical way, right? Or just maybe the, 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 the over, over, flyover view of the, the airplane, right? Of what this should look like. You should be putting off the old self, right? He's gonna get super practical about that in the, in the remaining verses of the chapter, but, but here's the simple summary of what he's saying here. Stop doing things that God says are wrong, sinful, and harmful towards you. Stop doing them. Take some ownership of your life because now you know God, stop doing that stuff. And in stopping that behavior, put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God, meaning do what God wants you to do. (laughs) Live a life that seeks holiness and obedience in Christ. Now, this, this, this might sound super preachy here for a minute, but I think it's, it's important, right? Because as I've grown up over the last 12 years of being a follower of Jesus, and I've been involved in ministry for about a decade of that, and I've gotten to see a lot of people come to know the Lord and see a lot of people grow over time, um, and, and, and hearing us as a church just frequently talk about this idea of maturity, there's, there's something that I kind of notice consistently happening in the church, and, and, and one of the reasons is, is, is because I'm even guilty of it at times, that, I, that I'm guilty of, of what I'm about to talk about, uh, and probably you guys are as well, right? But you ever kind of ask yourself this question, if you've been a, a follower of Jesus for any length of time, ask yourself this question just saying, hey, God, I'm I'm, I'm super frustrated that I'm not maturing. Can anybody relate with that? Or I'm not maturing fast enough, or I see people, okay, so some of you guys are there, the rest of you are lying, and that might be something you need to, to, to check with, and maybe that's why you're frustrated, because you're lying to yourself, okay? But this idea of like, hey, I, I'm just not maturing, I don't, I don't really know what's going on. And so, so you do this, right? Right, we have a high view of God's sovereignty and we know that he saved us and that Jesus gets all the glory for what he's done. And so we say, well, because God is sovereign, here's what I'm gonna do. And I'm, just, I'm gonna sit back and I'm gonna say, God, and you pray this prayer, God, just change me. Anybody ever pray that prayer? Right, or be around a bunch of people that do. Right, you, you see people struggling with sin or you're in an accountability group or you're in a women's Bible study, whatever else it is, and you see this consistent struggle and we say, well, let's stop and pray. Right, and we just say, God, please change me. Okay, now it's gonna sound like I'm, I'm, I'm ragging on that and I'm not because you absolutely need to pray for the Spirit of God to move in your life to change you. But here's what typically happens. We pray that prayer, and then guess what? We don't do anything differently. Nothing. We don't, we don't change anything. 
don't change anything. Now, how foolish would it have been for Brent and the guys working on the technology back there to just keep for the next hour, just plugging and unplugging that broken uh, piece of equipment, I don't even know what you call it, cord, right? That broken cord, right? Just do that for the next hour and a half. Guess what's gonna happen, guys? That nothing's gonna change. They had to actually physically change, right, what was being used, right, to transmit that image to the television, right? Yet many of us as Christians, right, we pray, God, God, change me, and then we don't do anything different. We don't change our environment. We don't change our habits. We don't work to, to change who we're hanging out with. We don't change anything, and here's the reality. God has already changed you and given you the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul starts with that in verse 17. Live like it. Paul say, look, you have already been bought, redeemed, and changed inter- internally. You need to start responding to what God has already done inside of you. Right, the reality is, is, is is myself included, is we need to take a step back and do some self-examination and ask ourselves to, to stop just living these lives of simple knowledge seeking and what, I'm, what I've termed this past week as I was reading through this passage, passage is passive holiness. That we, we think that holiness and obedience is just gonna happen passively if we just stand there and let it happen unto us. And the language that I see in scripture is not one of just passive holiness, but it's passive holiness connected to a response of God's people living and choosing to follow him. Right, the reality is, is the Bible teaches that the gospel does a work to us, that the gospel does a work in us, and that the gospel does a work through us. And many of us are hung up on just that first point, right? That the gospel does a work to us. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died in our place and rose again. And the work that was done to us transformed us so that we might spend eternity with God in heaven. What we miss is that same work, is, is that same gospel is doing a work in us so that we can pursue holiness and obedience unto God. And that, that that same message is also doing a work through us to where we're sharing the truth of God's love in Christ to those around us and we're doing justice to the world around us that honors God and brings glory to him. That the gospel not only does a work to us, but it also pushes us in obedience unto God. And, the, and myself included, I often wanna skip those last two steps. Because those last two steps are active, they're not passive. It means, it means I might have to change some of my preferences. It means I might have to change right, so, some of what I like to do for the sake of pursuing and following God. But what Paul is saying here is that in reality of knowing who we are in Christ, that today we should repent of living lives that are solely, solely focused just on right doctrine, and preference, but that we should repent that if that same doctrine doesn't lead us to obedience. All right, and here, here, here's some good news, by the way. If you have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, 
and you have decided to do this, right, to, to put off the old self and put on the new self, here's what I know to be true of, of what God does. You will experience that if you live in obedience, you will experience God showing up. He will. He, because that's what he does. If you choose to follow what God says is, is right and true and good, you will experience God's faithfulness. Now that faithfulness, you know, now again, when you start saying words like that, like, hey, hey you're gonna experience God's faithfulness. Like people's minds run all over the place. Some of you guys are saying, okay, I'm gonna experience that just like crazy emotional experience of feeling God's presence. You might, you might not though. Some of you guys are like, if I'm faithful and obedient, God's gonna give me a new BMW. He might. He might also give you a Corolla. Right, or a Civic, or a Kia. I don't, you know, I don't know. Right, that, that, that obeying God and walking through life with him and experiencing his faithfulness is so much more than just sometimes what we define it as. But I, but I can say this, right? Before I got married to Jackie, right? My idea of, of marriage and relationships and love and sex was all over the place. Right? Like I, I had cultural influences. I had some church influences telling me what that should look like. I had some of my own desires and what I wanted. And so my view of, of, of love and marriage was all over the map. It was crazy, right? And so, so as I studied the word of God, right, God has some specific things to say about marriage, right? To, to, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And Daniel's gonna go into more detail on that in a few weeks. But there, there's some specific things that God calls me as a husband to do as I walk through marriage. And I can tell you this, there are times where I chose to love Jackie and, and lay down my preferences for her sake when I didn't really want to. And there have been times where Jackie's chosen to love me right, and honor me and respect me and esteem me when I sure did not deserve it. But that's God's design for marriage. Guess what we've seen on the tail end of coming through that, heading into, into year 10 of our marriage? We've seen God's faithfulness to us both time and time again. And somehow, I love Jackie more today than I did when I met her 10 years ago, and I didn't think that was possible. And, and it's not just because of how amazing Jackie is, even though she is, I love her to death, but God's faithfulness has driven us to experience a more joyful marriage within the confines of how he's designed it. I, I, I was telling uh, a, couple this, uh, uh, a couple days ago when we were doing premarital counseling with them. And again, I, this is not to, to raise myself up or make me, make me sound crazy, but I, I, I just genuinely believe this. I, I just don't really understand adultery. And, and I understand how some other people have fallen into that trap and that it's, it's something that's a very real reality for some people. But for me, I, I just can't imagine, at least in this season of my life, that ever being a struggle for me. And the reason is, is God has been so faithful to Jackie and I time and time again that I've experienced the real thing. I've experienced real love, joy, compassion, within the confines of my marriage with my wife that anything else looks like a cheap imitation and I don't want the cheap imitation. 
And God says, look, the, the reality is this, right? To, to walk in futility as a Gentile is to chase after the cheap imitation of what God really gives. And Paul says, don't do that anymore. Put off the old self that runs after the cheap imitation and run to the real thing. Right? Stop going after the fake cheese in the aisle, uh, the fake American slices that say cheese product, and go to the deli and get them to slice the real cheese right in front of you. Right? Get the real thing. Right? The real thing is better. Right? This, I have this deep desire that we as a church, right, would, would be known for pressing into obedience so that we could see more of God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Church, if we made a commitment to constantly be examining our lives and putting off the old self and putting on the new, we wouldn't be struggling with as many doubts. We wouldn't be struggling to experience joy because God's faithfulness rests in trusting him and obeying him. That's where we see his faithfulness. Now the, now the rest of Ephesians chapter four is just a bunch of really, really practical stuff on how to take off the old and put on the new. He's just, he's just gonna list a bunch of stuff there, right? Let me, he says this, he says, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Some of you guys need to read that right there. Some of you guys are like the biggest conflict avoiders of all time, right? God says, look, hey, putting on the new self is not avoiding conflict. Look what he keeps saying. He says, he says and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Right, it's just a bunch of practical ways to put off the old and put on the new. And here's the reality, right? This list is practical. It is not exhaustive. Right? If you're sitting here like, well, my sin's not listed there. I guess I don't have to put it off. That is not the point of those couple of verses of what, what Paul is saying there. Right? But let's just focus on, there's two things listed in, in, in that, that little uh, paragraph there that Paul puts out. There's two things that I want us to look at really quickly. Right? There's two separate kind of sins or ways that we tend to walk consistently that I want us to look at. Right? Look first at, at verse 31 with me. Right? It says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now the reason I picked that one out is because right now in this season of life, at least in our country, I think revenge and malice is something I see all over the place. I see slander all over the place. I see malice all over the place. I see bitterness all over the place. It, 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 and by the way, guess what? It's really, dis, it's really disheartening, Right? And probably one of the most disheartening things to me as I see that is seeing brothers and sisters in Christ participate in this with those who I know are not in Christ, right? But look at what he says. He's, he, he's basically saying, stop seeking malice and revenge, 
That's basically what he's saying. Hey, if someone irritates you or does something you don't like or something that you think is wrong, don't immediately go and seek revenge. Can I let you guys in on a little secret? Do you guys know that if you are in conflict with somebody or if someone has wronged you, you have a choice as to how you respond to them? Do you guys know that? Like, like you get to choose how you respond to them. Right? No, you can choose to be bitter, to be angry, to slander them, to talk about how dumb they are for wronging you or whatever their political position may be, how wrong they are and how stupid they are. You can pay them back for whatever it is they're doing. Or you can choose to do what Paul says to do in verse 32 and put on the new self. Right? You can choose to be kind. You can choose to be tenderhearted. You can choose to forgive them and forgive one another. Why? Because Christ first forgave you when you slandered and, mal- and had malice towards him. Right? It's a picture of the gospel. Right? I, guys, I know people who are in their 70s who are still bitter at their siblings for things that happened in their teen years. Could you imagine, can you imagine that? Most of you guys are young in here. Could you imagine holding on to a grudge for 50 years? 50 years of bitterness, of anger, of malicious thoughts of slandering your own family. Paul says, guys, there's a better way, right? That you can choose to put that off and instead respond in kindness and forgiveness and tenderness. Now, the other example that I thought was super pertinent was in verse 29. Let me read that. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Guys, this is super important because he's talking about gossip and the way that we talk to one another. And I want you to stop and pause for a minute, right? Because I, I went, our church has gone through this study a number of different times, so some of you guys are already gonna know what I'm talking about, but there's a, there's a little book that we've gone through a number of different times here as a church called The Gospel-Centered Life. And one of the things that, that you, that, they, they draw out when you're going through that workbook is this idea of why do we judge others in gossip? And one of the questions that they ask in that book, kind of in the, in the first chapter as you're going through the lesson, is, is, is why do we even gossip or judge in the first place? What, what is gossip or judging others? If we, if we boil it down to its, 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 its core foundational components, what is it? And basically, gossip is, is judging others by how they live, how they act, how they think. And what we're doing when, when we gossip or when we judge others, right, without kind of talking to them or dealing with them, is we're shrinking the power of the gospel. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is when I'm judging or I'm gossiping about someone, I, I am assuming that I am better than them. I'm assuming that my standard is better than them. And sometimes what I'm doing oftentimes is I'm, I'm assuming that my standard is better than God's standard for them. That, that, that inevitably, right, when we gossip, we're trying to elevate this view of self and decrease this view of someone else. And in doing that, as you increase your kind of view of self, you know what you're doing? You're decreasing your view of God. Right, that if you, if you think like, okay, like, uh, you know, this so-and-so, and we, 
we do this all the time as Christians, right? We get, we're talking to somebody, have you heard about so-and-so? Can you be praying for them? Right? We, we drop that line first. Be praying about so-and-so, I'm, re- I'm really worried about them. You aren't worried about them, you want to talk about them. Right? Hey, hey, hey will you pray for so-and-so? Right? Did you hear what happened? Yeah. Oh, no. Right? We, and we, the person on the receiving end is always like, huh? You know, the ears perk up. Right, so excited, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You, you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna fail out of school because you know they're 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 out partying all the time. Oh no. Oh man. Oh bless their heart. You know, right? Let, let, let's pray for them right now, man. I'm really glad. You know, and you know what you're doing. You are. You know who you are in that moment, right? Jesus gives a perfect example of this, right? When he, when he talks about two two different people praying. There's one on the street corner beating his chest saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that person. Right? And the other person sitting there screaming about all that, saying, woe is me, for I, for I, am, I am a sinner. Right? Well, when you're gossiping, guess which one of those two you are. Right? You're the Pharisee on the, on the street corner beating your chest saying, God, thank, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Thank you that I'm not failing out of school because of my drinking problem. Right? That, that's what we're doing. Right? We're, we're pulling attention away from ourselves so we might elevate ourselves. Right? Gossip is filled with self-justification. And guys, self-justification is the enemy of growing in Christ. It is the number one enemy to growing in Christ. And Paul says, there's a better way. Put on the new self. He says, speak only with, with language that only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you, you notice how exhaustive that directive is? Our speech should only be for building up and, and, and notice how he qualifies that in that occasion. I mean, that there may be times where you're talking about someone or talking with them about something and it fits that occasion, but guess what? It might not fit every occasion. That the purpose of our speech and our words towards one another is to build one another up. So what? Not so that you can look smarter, not that you can look better, not that someone else looks worse, but so what? That it may give grace to those who hear it. Right? Our language should point out how amazing Jesus is. And it might give grace to those around us. Gossip tears down the person we're attacking. But guess what, guys? Years ago, I started doing this when someone would start gossiping with me. I would just say, stop. I don't want to hear it. Do you want to know why? Because it is giving me a view of someone else. You're actually leading someone else into sin with you when you're doing it. You're causing them to think more lowly of someone else or elevate themselves in comparison to that other person as well. And as a church, we're called to a better way as we put on the new self. We're called to bring life in our speech to one another. Guys, what would the church look like if we did that? What if the church was known not for being hypocrites, but for being loving and genuinely caring towards one another? 
What if the church was known as a place that didn't gossip behind one another's backs, but cared deeply for one another? When I think about my church growing up as a kid, one of my biggest uh, pet peeves of that church was the way men and women in that church treated my family throughout the week and then treated us completely different to our face on Sunday mornings. What if we didn't do that? What if we were known as a place where, hey, the people here are messed up, they've got a lot of issues, but they love one another and they love God and they know that God loves them? What if that's what we were known for? being loved by God and loving others. As we, as we finish up our time this morning, guys, I'm, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer. Um, if we can go ahead and have Luke um, come up, and, and if the band wants to come up, they can, they can come up as well. Um, but here's, here's what I want us to do this morning. I, I think there's some incredibly practical ways that we can respond to this, right? The, fir- the first way is if you hear this morning and you're, and you're like, all this talk about being in Christ and, and, and following our, 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 our path out of, of who God calls us to be. I, I, I don't even know if I'm in Christ. It needs to start there. <laughs> so so if, if you're here this morning, like, I, I don't really know I'm in Christ, right? You can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, right? Where you recognize your own sinfulness and, and your rebellion towards God and you just said, God, I, I, I'm in rebellion towards you, I'm disobedient, I believe that you created me, that you designed me, that I'm supposed to live unto you. Father, Father, I'm gonna trust that Jesus died in my place for my sins, right, and rose again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Right? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take myself off the throne of my life and I'm gonna put Jesus there. Right, that's what it means to be in Christ, to, to begin a relationship with God, to be adopted into his family. But then we're gonna pray, right? And so, so if you're here this morning, like I've been a believer for five years, I've been a believer for 10 years, I've been a believer for 30 years, I've been a follower of Christ for five minutes, however long it is, right? Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer where we ask God to help us identify in the ways that we're putting on the old self and ask God right, to reveal those to us so we can put them off and then ask God to lead us into putting on the new self. And if you're sitting there this morning as we're praying through that and you wanna come up front and pray with someone else and, and confess that sin and ask that person to hold you accountable, if you don't have a friend here with you this morning that you can do that with, we'll have people up front that you can pray with. But if we can get the lights turned down, right, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer. And then as you feel led, either while I'm still praying or during our time of communion, where when we take communion here at Aletheia, what we're doing is we're responding to what God has already done in our behalf, that he gave his flesh and his blood to forgive us of our sins. And we take communion as an act of worship, thanking God for what he did to free us. And as you take communion, if you feel led, you can come up here and you can pray with one of our leaders, right? confessing that sin, that old self, and ask them to pray with you that they might put on the new. And ask them to walk with you in some accountability. So if you're bow, bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and it is true. And Lord, I 
I love how even here, here in Ephesians chapter 4, one of the first things that Paul could have done when he starts analyzing the life of the, the church at Ephesus is just start screaming about how terrible they are and how they're not living unto God. And it'd be really easy for, for us to do the same and just make it all about legalism. But because truth is found in you and identity is found rooted in you, that's the first place that Paul runs to and reminds us. To be reminded of who we are in you. God, thank you so much that Jesus surrendered and laid down his own life so I might be forgiven and loved. And Jesus, if there's anybody in here this morning that does not know that to be true and does not believe that, I pray that you would move in them mightily right now, Lord, and that you would save them. That they would place their trust in you and they would stop living a life of futility, searching after their own way, but that they would surrender their life to you, trusting you as God and King and trusting Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, that you would continually remind me in my own waywardness, my own obstinance towards you of that same truth, that I am in Christ because of what Jesus did. And so if you're a believer here this morning, might you just thank God that Jesus died for you so that you might have new life. thank you that we are in you. God, as we, as we seek to live that out, God, might you reveal to us the ways in which we're walking in our former life, the ways that we are putting on the old self each day and, and living a life of disobedience. God, reveal that to us right now. Reveal our sin to us, Lord, so that we might confess it and repent of it. for the promise that that because we are in you that even when we sin and we put on the old self that that doesn't define who we are Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for doing that but Lord not just to forgive us Lord but give us the strength and the resolve to put on the new self and we spend this time in prayer just asking God to give us the wisdom to see what we need to change Right, that w- the patterns and the, and the habits that we have, Lord, what we might need to lay down so that we might live a life more fully unto God. Lord, help us, give us wisdom to see what that might be in this time. Father, thank you that your 
your word promises that if we put off the old and put on the new, that we will experience your faithfulness, that we will experience joy and life and peace as a member of your kingdom. So Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here this morning as we continue to worship you, Lord, that if there's anybody that, that wants to come up and pray with one of our leaders, Lord, that you would give them the, the boldness and the freedom to feel led to do so, that as we take communion, Lord, that we would worship you, thanking you for your son and what he's done for us. And Lord, as we worship you in song and we worship you in the giving of our, of our tithes and offerings, Lord, that all of this would be done, Lord, that we would live lives as holy sacrifices acceptable for worship to you. Because this is why we exist. This is why we breathe. Because of you. May we never stop making much of you. Father, forgive us of our sin and change us and give us the resolve to continue to do so and to keep putting off the old and putting on the new even if we fail to your glory. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.